Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Are starting a new series this week. Um, if you have your Bibles, our scripture is going to be in uh, Romans chapter 6. We're going to be kind of going through uh, the f- whole first part of this chapter here. So we're going to kind of, it's going to be a, ex- we're going to dive into the text and kind of take it line by line a little bit through that. Um, yeah, we're going to be looking at how our failures don't stop us from moving forward in life, right? Just because you have failed in the past doesn't mean you have to fail again. We're not bound by that failure. We can learn from that failure. We're going to be exploring how we can grow from failure and move forward in our life. So bow your heads with me and we'll pray and we'll dive into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would meet with us this morning. I pray that you would be here with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of you guys probably remember the famous Nike commercial with Michael Jordan. If not, let me kind of unpack it for you. Michael Jordan in the commercial, he states that I have missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I've missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Many of us hear this and we think, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Don't let failure stop us. Don't let fear of failure keep us from trying. Yeah, we get it. We've heard that before. You miss a thousand percent of the shots you don't take. We have to, we have to, can't be afraid of failing. We must keep pushing forward. Failure isn't something that you, you must go through, but it's something that gets you to the success. So the message is clear. Failure isn't something that some of us that we experience and we learn from. It's not something you have to do, but it's something that you learn from and gets you to where you're going. It's possible, It's po- the difference is subtle, but it's possible to have success because of your failure. People praise Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time, right? Greatest basketball ever. There's this debate, him or LeBron, okay, whatever you want to say. Michael Jordan is definitely the greatest basketball player of all time. 
But he is confident that the only way he reaches that status is not because he persevered through failure, but because his failure drove him forward. He explains in another interview that he hated, he despised failure so much that he almost hated the feeling of losing more than he loved the feeling of winning. He, didn't ne- he never wanted to feel that feeling of failure again, so he was determined not to let it happen. When he failed, when he missed that shot, when he didn't succeed, those would make drive him to practice harder, put in, put in the more hours, do what he needed to do, so that the next time he was faced with that situation, he would not fail again. The way forward when you fail is not just to get up, dust yourself off, and say, better luck next time, and go forward and fail again. You don't have to fail over and over and over again. The way forward is to learn from your failure and not fail again. The goal when you miss the winning shot is to hit the practice court, is to watch the film, is to put in the effort to learn and improve so that the next time you get the ball with 0.2 seconds left on the clock, you drain the bucket. The goal is to not be stuck in your failure, but to move forward out of it. For Christians, the subject of failure is more than just losing a basketball game, okay? It deals with big issues. It deals with sin and salvation and holiness and ethics. And ultimately, the the, the Christian life, it's about what the Christian life looks like. Is the Christian life just one of constant failure and never moving forward? Are we helpless sinners who never make progress? Or are we, saved, are we saved from something? Like, are we saved from hell? You know, you, you surrender your life to Christ. You get your get out of hell free card. Or is it more than that? Are we saved not just from something, but for something? Are we saved for the advancement of the kingdom of God? I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this. It's crazy that I'm old enough to preach now and date myself. But uh, like in the late 90s, there was these keychains that came out and it said, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. Just me, okay? There's bumper stickers, keychains, t-shirts that went around and they said, Christians, I'm a Christian, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven, right? And and I get the idea behind it. This It's a good message, right? Because the problem was Christians kind of had this, uh, people viewed them as being holier than thou, right? You got your life together. You're all perfect. You know what's going on. Congratulations. So, so this, this movement kind of came around that said, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. I do sin. I do mess up. I do fail. I do fall short, but I'm forgiven. And this is, this is great, but it also falls short of the Christian message. Paul says in, in Romans, I'm going to go ahead and read the the first part of this here, and then we'll unpack it. But Romans chapter 6 says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ? If we were baptized into death, we were therefore buried in his death through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too have new life. Paul says, okay, so you have grace. You're forgiven. Does that mean you just keep sinning so that you just keep getting more grace? Absolutely not. What he says in... Later on, he says it again. What then? Should we, should we sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? Again, he says, absolutely not. This idea 
of I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven, ultimately is kind of hopeless. It's saying that I may fall short, but I'm going to continue to fall short. I'm forgiven for my failure, but I'm going to fail again. There's never a way out. There's never a way forward. I know your marriage is falling apart because of how you treat your spouse, but you're forgiven for the way you treat them. But ultimately you're going to do it again. So there's really no hope for your marriage. You're forgiven for abusing that prescription pill, but you won't be free from it. You're forgiven for wasting your money on frivolous Amazon purchases or gambling away your retirement, but you will never actually be wise with your money. But you're forgiven. You're forgiven for being dishonest at work and losing your job, but you know what? You're going to do it at the next job too. You're forgiven. You're you're going to heaven, but you're never going to be free. That's what that statement ultimately says. And Paul says that's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message of Jesus on the cross. He doesn't just save us so that we can be forgiven, but he saves us and he changes us. That's the hope of moving forward in failure is the fact that we can actually change that this idea that we're always going to fall short, this idea that we're never going to be free, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus. The gospel is you are forgiven, but it's so much more than forgiveness. You are forgiven and you can change. Your failure is not something you are stuck in. You can change. You can be free. You don't have to keep failing in the same way over and over again. You can move forward in your failure. Just because you have grace, does that mean you keep on sending? Absolutely not. But how? How do we change? How do we, how do we get into this process? How do we enter this process of change? How does our, how does our faith in Christ lead us into this transformation? Thanks for asking. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you. Okay, three kind of principles, three points, okay? You know, pastors love their three points. They love their alliteration. I got them both for you, okay? The three points, we recognize our status, we realize our unity, and we remember our identity. Recognize your status, realize your unity, and remember your identity. If you go continue reading in Romans, verse 16 says this, do not do you not know that if you are present if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves to the one whom you obey either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness now when we hear this the bible start talking about slavery a lot of us are like oh, and you know and I'm a pastor and I've worked in the secular world and, and I get these questions all the time you know Christians they've used the bible to support slavery and and this isn't a message on slavery but what but what I want to point out this morning is that slavery in the bible is not the modern slavery that we think of it wasn't race based it wasn't gender based in fact what well, often what would happen for in biblical slavery was someone would have this debt lifelong debt overwhelming overbearing debt on their life that they had to pay back and it would be they would spend the rest of their life stuck in this debt so what they would actually do is they would offer themselves to the person they're in debt to as a slave, something kind of more like a bond servant, right? And what they would do is they would do this slavery in biblical times wasn't for life. 
like we think of with modern slavery, right? It wasn't for life. So what they would do is they would work for five to five years, 10 years, maybe a little longer. And then when that was over, they were then free. They were free from their master and they were free from their debt. And so this process, now listen, the Bible is clear. If you take Genesis to Revelation, you look at it, Jesus is about setting the captives free, okay? The Bible is anti-owning people. It's anti-slavery of any kind. But in this culture, we hear that first part of that passage and we're kind of shocked by the slavery comments. Who Paul is writing to, the original writers, they were not shocked by that. In fact, you guys know I like to use illustrations, right? When I'm trying to explain a point, I'll use real life situations like the Michael Jordan thing in a second ago. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, you were talking about sin and grace and finding freedom and being made holy and changing and failing forward. Let me use this illustration that you understand. If someone is in debt, they sell themselves and now they have a master. And the second part is what would have been shocking to the original readers. Because Paul is saying there's only two categories of people. You are a slave, but you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to obedience. You're a slave to righteousness, to Christ. There's only two kinds of people. Those who follow the Bible, the God of the Bible and those who follow the God of their choosing. This is the part that was shocking to his people. Those who you're either someone who lives in obedience to Christ or you're a slave to something else. There's no third category. So what I say when I say you have to realize your status for this point is you have to realize that you are in fact a slave to something. There is something that rules your life. A lot of us don't realize that because we're in a time where we get to choose. We could choose our career. We could choose the relationships we're in. We can choose the, the th- our hobbies. We can choose the things we desire. We could choose those things so we think we're in control. But the problem is when you actually choose that thing and you give yourself to it, it then controls you. Paul is leaning heavily on the first commandment here, that you shall have no other gods before me. You have a God, whether it's the God of the Bible or some little G God that you have chosen to give yourself to. We are all spiritual slaves to something. If it's not the God of the Bible, then you have given yourself to something. Everybody, you have something that you're living for. We all have something that that adds meaning and significance and security to our lives. It could be a wide range of things, and it doesn't have to be bad. Sometimes we think, yeah, I'm a slave to to drugs and alcohol, or I'm a slave to sex and lust. But but it could be good things. It could be family. It could be you could be a slave to the approval of a father or a mother figure. You could be a slave to independence or having someone depend on you. You could be a slave to to power or status or a political cause. You could be a slave to money or romance or or your personal appearance. There's a, a wide range of things that we give ourselves to. You are going to live for something. There's something in your life that makes it meaningful. And if it's not God of the Bible, that's something else. And Paul is saying that we have to recognize, we have to recognize our status as spiritual slaves and realize what we have given ourselves to. Tim Keller, who is a, an incredible theologian and pastor. I, when I first got out of college, he was one of those pastors. I read like seven of his books and he's written much more. He actually passed away on Friday. And so it's been amazing to kind of see people from all kinds of 
uh, theological and political backgrounds all have nothing but amazing things to say for him and the way he handled himself. But when he talked about this idea of having a spiritual master, he, he recommended asking three questions, right? Do you want to know if you're following something that is other than God? If something other than God is ultimate, you can ask yourself three questions, right? The first one is anger. If something blocks you from getting something good in your life, it'll make you angry. If something blocks you from getting the ultimate thing in your life, the thing that you have based your life on, you get angry, angry, right? You get enraged. You lose it. You blow up. You say things, and then afterwards you think to yourself, I don't know why I said those things. Or you get incredibly bitter. So so when you lose a good thing, you get angry, and that's okay. But when you lose the ultimate thing, you become enraged and irate. If not anger, then what about fear? If something in your life is good and that thing is threatened, you become worried. But if the ultimate thing, the thing that you have placed as the one thing that gives you meaning, that becomes threatened, you are then paralyzed with fear. You absolutely fall apart. Your anxiety becomes uncontrollable. If it's not anger and fear, what about sadness? If you lose something that is good, you grieve. You weep. It takes a long time to actually get over it. But if you lose the ultimate thing, you want to take your own life. There's no meaning to life at all. You just want to end it. If you have something in your life that is removed, blocked, taken away, and you go to the absolute uttermost extreme, chances are that thing is not just a good thing, but it has become an ultimate thing. And the only way for us to move forward out of failure is to surrender ourselves to God. He is the only ultimate thing that will not demand more and more and more of you without satisfying you. He is the only thing that actually gave himself for you. He's the only ultimate that you can place in your life that did what he is asking you to do. He gave it all on the cross. He emptied himself. He surrendered everything, his very life dying on the cross to offer us freedom and forgiveness. There's no other thing that you can place in the ultimate spot that has done that for you. If you find yourself stuck in repeated failure, making the same mistakes over and over and over again, Chances are that thing is your ultimate thing and it's not the God of the universe. So you have to recognize your status as a spiritual slave and you have to ask yourself, what are you a slave to? If you surrender your life to Christ, you declare him as Lord and pledge your allegiance to him, then you enter into verses three and through five. And it says this, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We who were baptized into his death, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Really listen to verse five. This is incredible. Listen to verse, it says, for we have been united with him in death like his, and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Once you surrender your life to Christ, you can, you can realize your new 
unity with him. You, you realize your, you recognize your status, you surrender to him, and then you become unified with him. Paul, what Paul's talking about when he says all this talk about baptism, it's about those who have declared their allegiance to God. Baptism is not, doesn't save you. It's kind of like the wedding ring, right? It's an outward uh, profession of what's happened inward. I'm married to Lauren whether I wear this ring or not, right? If I take it off to put my, my beard butter in in the morning, right, and then I forget to put the ring back on and go to work, it doesn't mean I'm not married to Lauren for that day, right? This ring is a, is a representation of the commitment that I made. And that's what baptism is. It's saying, I have been buried with Christ. I'm raised with Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. He has my allegiance. He is Lord of my life. Listen, if you haven't been baptized, I want to baptize you. Okay, what I want to do is I'm actually kind of been toying around with this. I think I want to do a baptism service uh, kind of towards the end of the summer. And then leading up to that, I want to go through a basic of Christianity kind of course, if you will, right? So there's a book that we'll go through four or five weeks. We'll go through it. I'm thinking about Tuesday nights and we'll make it happen. And at the end of that course, we'll have a Sunday and we'll baptize people because that's what that's going public with your faith, right? And so Paul is saying, if you have done that, if you are a follower of Christ, then you have been united with him. And this word united is a horticultural word, right? That's big, right? It's like an agriculture. It d- deals with trees and plants. And there's all kinds of times in the Bible where God says we're drafted in, we're, we're like the branches, he's the vine, we're the branches. But this word that's used here for united is actually being drafted into the root of a plant, the root of a tree. So this is saying that, that you've been inserted into the very life of Christ. We have been united with him at the very root of life. We, when we declare that he is our Lord, we are inserted into the roots of Christ's life. What does that mean? It means that we have been united with past. Jesus was dead. We are dead. And with future, Jesus was resurrected. We will be resurrected. This this whole life. So what this means is what's true for Jesus is true for you. You've been united with him, drafted into the roots of his life. Listen, without giving a history lesson, this is kind of hard for us to understand because we are products of the enlightenment, okay? What that means is is that's elevated self. So in our society, it's all about us. It's all about me, the individual. I need to make myself happy. I need to get my things. I need to have my relationship. And even when we think about community, it's the community, the people that we are involved with. It becomes all about self, but that's not how things worked in the Bible. And when this image of being united with Christ, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around that. But to illustrate it, I think about football. Okay, lots of sports this morning. Right? If you've ever been to a football game, they have the captains that walk out to the middle, right? There's like three of them. They do, they do the coin toss. They say, I pick heads. Whoever wins the coin toss then says whether they want to receive or kick. The other team gets to choose whether they're going to guard this end zone or that end zone. And whatever those captains choose is true for everybody that's wearing the same color jersey as them, right? The referee doesn't say, okay, you guys are defending the North. I don't care what everybody else on your team does. What's true for the ones in the middle is true for everybody on the sideline. What's true for Christ is true for you. So think about Jesus. Think about Jesus' past. Look at what he accomplished. Look at the nobility, the goodness, the courage. Think about him in the garden when he's praying and weeping tears of blood because of the anguish of the future that he's going to face. Think about the courage that he takes to willingly go to the cross for our sins. Think about the greatness of Christ. 
And we are told that he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's the place of honor. We see that when Jesus is baptized, that the Father is well pleased. When the Father looks at Jesus, he, his heart is bursting with delight. That's the past of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is what's true of Jesus' past is now true of you. The determining factor in your relationship with God is no longer your past, but Jesus' past. Your sins, your failures, your flaws are not the lens in which God views you. Your father accepts you and he delights in you and he honors you and he sees you as having the beauty of his son, Jesus. What's true of him is true of you. Think about Jesus' future and a resurrection like his. There's uh, incredible uh series of books, Lord of the Rings. You've probably heard it. You've probably seen the movies, right? There's a scene in these books where uh, Samwise Gamgee, he's having a conversation with Gandalf. He thinks Gandalf has died. He thinks himself has died. And so he has this conversation with Gandalf and he sees him and he's like, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And then I thought I was dead. Now we're both here. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? There is a day when everything will be redeemed. All of creation will be made new. There will be no more sorrow, death, pain, or sadness. It's not going to be some ethereal place high above the clouds that we go to and we gain our wings. That's not what happens. What happens in the end of time is that Jesus comes back and makes a new heaven and a new earth and everything sad comes untrue. And Paul gives us these bookends. He says, you are unified with Christ. We see it in his death and we see it in his future. His past becomes our past. His future becomes our future. And we in the middle are changed because of those things. And that's why we remember our identity. That's the third point. We follow him. We surrender him. And we have a new identity in him. Verse six says that we know that our old self has been crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to him, to sin. Old self is gone so that, these are words, so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. So you see what happened to Jesus, he, was, he died and he raised. So we too, we have died and in the future we will be raised. And in the middle, in the meantime, that means that our character is different. We don't just keep failing over and over. We are free from sin. You are free from failure. It does not rule you. You can move forward out of failure. Verse nine says that death no longer has dominion over Jesus. That word dominion is an old word for authority. Since Christ has died and raised from it, death has no authority. The authority has been broken. So if we go back and we remember point one, they sold themselves to a master to pay that debt. Christ has paid your debt. That authority has been broken. Whatever ruled your life no longer rules your life because you are in Christ and that is your new identity. Because you are in Christ, whatever has been ultimate in your life is no longer has ultimate reign. Just because you sinned in the past doesn't mean you have to sin in the future. 
And if you don't feel like that's true, if you look at your life and you say, you know what, I follow Jesus, but man, my status or my job or my relationships or my money or my approval of others, they all seem to have that control. Then I would say that you have, I wouldn't say that you aren't saved, okay? But I would say that you haven't realized the full power of the cross in your life. Because verse 11 says this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. That word consider means you might not always realize it. There might be times where sin has gotten the upper hand. There might be times where you have fallen short, but that is not what rules your life. Just because you fall short doesn't mean it is now the champion over you. Christ is your champion. You have to consider yourself in the status that you actually have. You have to consider yourself in your new identity. Even if you don't feel like it, you treat yourself like the true person you are, a person forgiven and transformed. You have to remind yourself that you have a new identity and treat yourself as though you do have that new identity. If you aren't changing in the way that you need to, if you aren't moving, Moving forward out of your failure is not because you lack the resources. In Christ, you have all that you need. My favorite, uh, one of my favorite illustrations of this is St. Augustine. Do you guys know who St. Augustine is? He's like one of the church fathers, right? But he wasn't always St. Augustine. There was a time where he was young Augustine. And uh, to put it politely from the pulpit, young Augustine had a problem with sexual self-control. We'll put it that way, okay? He, um, yeah, we're just going to say it like that. He had a wild lifestyle. And one day, after he was saved, one of his old mistresses showed up and propositioned him. She was like, hey, let's go back to my place. We can have our fling, which in this time would last for uh, several days. They can have this, their special time, okay? And St. Augustine, he looks at her and he says, thank you, thank you very much. It's nice to see you, yes, but no, okay? I'm gonna move on. Thank you, I'm flattered, but, but no. And he walks on and she's puzzled. She's like, oh, he must not recognize me. So she calls out to him. Augustine, it is I. And Augustine turned around and he smiled. He looked at her and he said, yes, I know, but it is not I. He used to be a person who had to have female affection, no matter how destructive it was to him or to her. He used to be a person that had to have those moments of self satisfaction. And they were not about love. They were about him and only him and trying to fill this hole that was in his life that was never actually truly filled. And when he was transformed by God, when he was transformed by the love of Christ, he became a new person with a new identity. He used to be a person that was controlled by those things, but now he has a new master. He is free from that. His identity is in Christ and he is no longer the man that that lady thought she knew. Yes, but it is not I. So how do you move forward out of failure? You recognize that your master is Christ. And you realize that in that you are unified with Christ. And you remember that your identity is in Christ. And that begins to drive your decisions moment 
by moment. You break it down moment by moment. How does this actually work? How does it live out? What's the practicality of it? Verse 12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You've been transformed. Don't let sin reign. There'll be times where sin is tempting. There'll be times where there's a moment where you want to give in, but don't do that. Do not present your members. When it says members, it's talking about the parts of your body, literally your hands, your feet, your vocal cords, your eyes. Don't let those things be instruments for unrighteousness, but present them to God and he will bring you from death to life. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul is saying that you have this new identity, but moment by moment, you must choose to walk in it. You break these things down when you have that test of anger and fear and sadness and you realize that the ultimate thing is trying to creep back in. In that moment, you surrender. You create new habits. Let me close with this illustration. It's another sports one. Sorry, you got to deal with it. I like sports, okay? The human being is not scientifically supposed to be able to hit the baseball that you see in, in the MLB, right? Like scientifically, it should be impossible to make contact with baseballs that have the speed and the movement that come in professional baseball. But that's not what happens. We, if you can watch the Braves, they get lots of hits, okay? <laughs> the Mets don't. Chris isn't here for me to, to you know, poke at him, all right? But, but, so, but what happens is those, those baseball players, they're not picking up a bat for the first time to go out and see this 90-plus mile-an-hour fastball. What happened is when they were young, they picked up a bat and they started hitting off a tee. Then as they kind of got older, they saw coaches pitching. And then they started to face live pitching from their peers. And the, the pitching got a little bit faster and had a little bit more movement. As they got into school, they start spending hours every day practicing. They're in the batting cages. They're hitting against machines. They're doing soft tosses. They, hours and hours of practice is put in. The pitching gets a little bit better. They kind of get into the minor leagues. And the pitching is even better. And they're practicing on the field. And they go home and they practice off the field. And their, their brain begins to form these little connections. Their, their muscles begin to get these memories and by the time they actually reach the MLB where they're facing 90 plus mile hour fastballs, curveballs that have like 13 inches of movement, they're not supposed to be able to hit that but what's going on is they've trained their muscles and their mind. They've studied the game and in that moment they they get to the place where they, they know the pitcher, they know what kind of pitches they throw, they know the situation, they kind of narrow down this is probably where the ball is going to be. And they're looking for that ball. They're looking for the spin. Their eyes recognize it. And in an instant, those synapses fire off, those neuron fires off, and they swing. Their body reacts to where the ball is going to be. It's not a, I'm going to see and swing and hit it as hard as I can. It's reaction. It's almost, if you study the brain, it's almost like a twitch because they see the ball and their brain functions as a twitch and their body just goes with memory and reacts to it. That's what happens. We don't realize that we're transformed. But when we break down moment by moment by moment, and we choose in that moment to walk in our new identity and surrender that moment to Christ, over time we look back and we realize that we have been transformed. You can study a violinist, professional violinist. Their left hand is bigger than their right hand. The part of their brain that controls the left hand is bigger than the other parts of their brain because they've put so much work and practice in that they're able to do these things reflexively. You talk, think about an alcoholic who's been through AA and they've been sober for 35 years, right? They would still say they're an alcoholic, but the temptation to drink is almost non-existent. 
because they've looked back and when they first got sober, it was almost impossible to stay sober. But 35 years later, it's barely even a thought because over time when we surrender moment by moment, we walk in that transformation, we walk in that new identity and that moment is easier than thinking about 35 years. But we surrender that moment and then when we look back 35 years from now, we're like, man, I really am a new person. I really have been transformed. I really am walking in a new identity. You may not feel like it right now. You may not feel like it in that moment where you have failed. But just because you failed today doesn't mean you have to fail tomorrow because sin does not control you. You may give in, you may fall short, but it is not your master. Christ is your master. And when we present those moments to him, we become transformed. You have to create new habits. I have, I'm trying to create a new habit in my life. Okay. I love sweets. I love sweets. And I feel like I deserve a sweet every night. Every night we get in the, we do our bedtime routine. I put the girls in the bed. We cut the lights off. I close their, close their door, crack their door. And I turn around and I walk straight to that pantry. And I open that pantry. I'm like, how do I treat myself tonight? I see there's these muffins. I could do cereal. There's ice cream in the refrigerator. And you joke around my brother-in-law. My blood type is little Debbie. All right. But there's this moment I have to change that habit because I'm, I, the, the Holy Spirit's convicted me. I'm not saying you can't have little Debbies, but he's convicted me that I have to start taking care of my body. And the way I do it is when I get to that moment where I want to be a slave to this sin, I want to be a slave to little Debbie, I have to realize that I surrender not to little Debbie, but to the heavenly father. And he, in that moment, he gives me strength so that 35 years from now, I look back, I close that door. I'm 15 years from now, my girl, my whatever. They'll be out of the house, hopefully. But I won't have that moment at the end of the day where I crave that sweet. I'll have that moment where I crave that presence of the Heavenly Father. I change that moment. Instead of being going to the pantry, maybe I go to the couch and listen to worship music, open my Bible or pray, and I take that moment and I surrender it to my true master, who is my Heavenly Father. And then that happens. We realize the truth of our status we realize the truth of being unified in Christ and our new identity. That's how we change. We're going to look at how we get through failure. We're going to look at how we're going to fail forward. But what we have to realize in week one of this message series is that because you failed yesterday doesn't mean you have to fail tomorrow. Realize that when you surrender your life to Christ, you walk in a new identity and surrender those moments to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you transform us. I thank you that we are made new, even sometimes when it doesn't feel like it, that sin is not our master. And yeah, we might give it some ground, and yeah, we might fall short, but just because that's the the case doesn't mean that it is now our master again. That I pray that we would surrender every moment to you, that you would be our ruler, that you would be our Lord, that King Jesus, you will reign in our lives as supreme I pray, Lord, that you would show us the things that we have made ultimate and give us the courage and the strength to remove those, to rip off the band-aid and to face the truth and make you the one and only ultimate thing in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray.